couple of weeks off, like, what's wrong with December? No, 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 it has to be November. Oh, and here's the deal. And they lowball you on the deal. And, you know, Fury's outstanding at getting the public to believe absolute nonsense. Like, I mean, I think, you know, it, it worries me actually what people do believe. You know, if you if you go to if you if you look at the timeline over the last three or four weeks, it's unbelievably bizarre. Yet people still just take it with a pinch of salt and say, you know, oh, he's retired. Oh, he's retired. Okay. Oh, he wants half a billion. Oh, he wants to fight Chisora. I mean, two days ago he was calling out Manuel Char, another guy. Then Usyk. But the, the big problem for for Fury is that probably in February or March the Middle East will be looking to make the undisputed fight with um, Usyk. So. Personally, I don't feel that Fury is serious about this, but if he is, as I said to the, the Warrens last night, 100% we will sit down and make the fight. Give us the date, give us the offer, and we'll come straight back to you. Because, like I said, the plan was definitely not to fight Tyson Fury, but having spoken to AJ and you heard, you know, you read out his statement, he's ready to do it because these fights don't come around often. He's wanted it for a long time. He would have no problem taking this fight in December. And welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where we just might get Fury versus Joshua. Now, I'm not holding my breath and I don't think any of you should, but it's the first time I think we've seen this process start with very little friction. So, just trying to, trying to get up to speed with where the story is. To, to be honest, if I'm being honest with you, I'd rather have started on the, on the Sky Card on Saturday because I quite like what Dan Aziz did, but we can come into that later. But this story sort of crept up and sort of gathered speed as I was planning out what I wanted to say today. But how do we summarize the story? Seemingly out of the blue, you know, Tyson Fury was talking about retiring. Then he said he was going to keep hold of the belt because, you know, <laughs> you don't want to be fully retired. You know, he's been part-time retired for a long time now, hasn't he? And then, yeah, out of the blue, he just said he'd offer Anthony Joshua the fight. And we've heard all of this before. No one took it seriously. And I think it picked up steam on Tuesday when it was presented to Eddie Hearn on TalkSport with Laura Woods, which, by the way, I thought was a massive conflict of interest because she seemingly let Eddie Hearn say what the hell he wanted unchallenged. And it's no coincidence, right? Because he gave her her gig in boxing. And whatever people want to say, and I know people talk up Laura Woods and she gets credit on Twitter. But I'll say this about Laura Woods. Laura Woods is basically a social worker on TalkSport. If you know what social workers are like, you'll know that they'll never say anything controversial because they go, oh, five years from now, when I'm trying to get promoted, this may come against me. So they never say anything of substance. They don't say anything that's interesting. They don't say anything you will remember. And what they're really good at is that kind of boring devil's advocate stuff. And that's what Laura Woods was doing to Eddie Hearn, which is perfect for him because he can needle and he can talk nonsense. And he, if you remember that interview on Tuesday, he was very, very cynical. And the problem Hearn has, and I know he listens and his acolytes listen, his little minions listen, his little camera jockeys, they all listen, so this will get back to him. Hearn's problem is he talks so much and so recklessly that smarter, more experienced heads let him talk himself into a corner. So... So Eddie Hearn talks, massively cynical. Frank Warren comes on and is far more composed and says, yeah, we've got an offer ready. We're going to send them the offer. It's an offer that they can't turn down. And we were still relatively cynical. But then we heard that the offer went out later that day. 
and then Tyson Fury explains what the offer is. Just couldn't keep it in, could he? And so now we know that whatever the fight is, it'll be a 60-40 split in favor of Fury. Fast forward to Wednesday morning. And I think Hearn's done rounds at all these other media outlets. But in summary, Hearn has said, we will accept the 60-40 split in Fury's favor, but we won't fight in November. We want to fight December 17th. Turns out Frank Warren's got the Millennium Stadium booked for December 17th. I imagine if you go on booking.com right now, those hotels are through the roof. I imagine. So, so that's where we are. Hearn's pushing back, saying he wants to fight in December, and they want to reverse the splits for the winner because there's a rematch clause. And so on the face of it, I want to be cynical, but I'm too cynical in general. So I, I'm going to be hopeful that this is serious. And it comes from one of, one of two places. Either Anthony Joshua is literally that maniacal about atoning for his sins that he really wants to go at fury. Or this is him saying, this is my last fight. Because if Anthony Joshua were to get stopped against Tyson Fury, like Dillian White got stopped, I don't think there's a way back in terms of being who Joshua was. You know, I, I think he, he no longer... He no longer sits at that table as a top five heavyweight if he gets stopped against Fury. And you have to look at it from this perspective. Wilder has a better chin than Joshua. That we can, that we can all accept. And if Fury can mow him down, Fury can mow Joshua down. I think Wilder's more mobile. I think, yeah, we can talk about the skills as much as we want, but no matter how much skill Joshua and Wilder have combined, it doesn't come close to what Fury's got. And yeah, so this will be the first time Joshua's fought a live opponent that is bigger than he is, like significantly so. So I'm, I'm, I want the fight to happen. I'm intrigued, but I think there's so much you have to get right ahead of that fight. The zone will look at that and go, well, where are we going to eat here? You know? And I think that's why you notice in, in Eddie's current interviews, he's having to rein himself in. I think he got the memo which said, do not mess this up. Because if Joshua is going to get smoked, we need to get some money for this, some good money for this. Because otherwise we have a worthless asset. And that's on Hearn's shoulders. So Hearn's being a bit more diplomatic than we're used to him seeing. And that's to his credit. He's showing strings to his bow. But here we are. The last time we were here in a situation like this was four years ago. And Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury were able to agree a fight, sign contracts and get it moving. So quickly, we still didn't believe it was going to happen. No one believed it was going to happen. And it did. So let's, let's all agree as a boxing community, two things. Fury generally fights who he says he's going to fight. And Fury rarely ducks anybody. When he gave Dillian White his shot, he gave Dillian White his shot. He dealt with him the way he said he would. And that was that. Won't deal with it again. He fought Wilder when people said he'd be crazy to do so. He did that. Fought him two times more. Obliterated him. But those fights made both of them as characters. So, we can be cynical about this. And I fully understand everyone being cynical because oh, we've been here before. But I'm hopeful that we can get something. Because I think these guys understand that Boxing needs this. 
boxing needs a year like this. And, you know, in Eddie's IFL interview, he, he sort of ran down some of the fights he's been involved in this year. And you've got to give the man his due. Like, I'm not saying he delivered the top tier fights, but what he did is he gave us that consistent hum of hits. I'm trying to think of, of a good example. A bit like Billie Eilish, right? You know Billie Eilish? No, like, no one really knows who Billie Eilish is. But you can hear a Billie Eilish song and you're like, oh, I, I know who that is. Or who else is like that? The Weeknd. You know, there are just certain songs you hear and you're like, oh, that's who that is. And that's what Eddie Hearn's like. He's kind of like EDM, isn't he? You kind of hear it everywhere, but you're not necessarily a fan. And so what he does is he gives us that kind of consistent metronome of decent fights that you'd stay up to watch or you tune in to watch. And you'll give him his due. He won't deliver the top-level fights because he just doesn't have the reputation or the respect to do so. But if, if this fight happens, and hopefully it happens without matchroom, because I think this fight without the Hearn spin is kind of what we need as a boxing public and for the casual audience. I'm, I'm going to stay optimistic about it, but I think the next week will be crucial because if they can't agree on a December date, this doesn't work. And even from my perspective, it doesn't work. If Fury's saying they got a fight in early November, that feels a bit disrespectful to me. That, that's the bit that feels not serious because in Fury's position, he's just be like, I'll fight him anywhere, anytime. That's normally what he says. So December 17th, there's nothing getting in the way of that. Let the fight happen. And then let's all of us get excited because it's a week before Christmas and what better way to blow your money? One thing I did want to add is if this becomes a phase in boxing where people start talking about I'll jump in and fight anyone, that can only benefit the fans. I don't think it will be because I genuinely think people are too frightened to lose. Um, never understood why. Like you can either make money in this game or you can't. You winning or losing won't make a difference. I don't think Dillian will earn much less money for having lost to Fury than he would have had he not lost to Fury. I think there are people the fans will get behind. Whether you win or lose, they'll just get behind you because they understand what you bring. And a good example of that would be someone like Dan Aziz who fought on Saturday. I didn't think the segue would be that sweet, but here we go. So I didn't really watch a lot of the card on Saturday, mainly because I was traveling. So I tried to grab what I could when I could. And I was intrigued to watch Dan against Shikan Pitters. And there's a very good reason why. I saw the Shikan versus Craig fight, so Shikan Pitters versus Craig Richards. And people always remember that fight as being Craig stopped Shikan in the ninth round. I think it was the ninth round. But people forget for large tracks of that fight, Shikan was more than competitive because it was really the battle of the jabs. Neither man is a, is a workhorse in terms of punch volume. You know, they like to be precise and accurate with their shots. They prize efficiency over work rate. So a lot of people wrote Shikan off after that fight, but I didn't think he was done. I thought he was still competitive at that sort of British level. You know, maybe British plus, but definitely British. He's a solid British contender. You could put him in with Lyndon Arthur and it's competitive. You could put him in with... Uh, who else? Rocky Fielding. He'd be competitive for a while. So it was a good test to see where Dan is. I thought Hosea was incredibly weight drained and he didn't look like he was in condition to fight. But that's no excuse. You know, Dan had to beat what was in front of him and he did it comfortably. And it was on Hosea to get himself straight for that fight. This was more like, okay, light heavyweight, 
Dan Aziz has got a live opponent. And so this is how we start to look at, I always look at Dan's CV in terms of where he was. So if you think about it, he beat Charlie Duffield for the Southern area. That's a solid win. You know, you fought guys like Charles Adamu to get there. You, you cemented yourself at that Southern area level. There was no debate, nothing. You did it the right way. And then Dan went to English level. And he fought, let me, if, I, if I get these wrong, apologies, but I think he fought Lawrence Osuaking. He fought Andre Sterling. And he fought Ricky Summers at English level. That's, that, that's as English level as you can get. I think that's probably as hard an English level run as you're going to get. Because those guys are definitely English level, maybe slightly above. And Dan handled all of them comfortably. And so British level, you've kind of seen Dan fight Hosea Burton, uh, Reese Cartwright, and obviously on Saturday, Shikan Pitters. Not once has Dan looked in trouble. For all the time Dan Aziz has held the belt, he hasn't looked in trouble. He's looked comfortable. Never forget that. Dan's looked comfortable. And in this fight with Shikan, what I loved was seeing the growth in what Dan does. And one of the examples of that growth was watching Dan use the cross-hand block, something that I probably nagged him to use for a while. He might have seen one of my Instagram videos where I do it. I'm not going to claim credit, but... <clears throat> but I think that's a useful addition to Dan because Dan will always be a guy that's there to maul you. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, his, that's his, almost his elegance, that you know what you're going to get with Dan. And as a boxing fan... If you're going to write down guys who you know come to fight, he's not going to look for the outside of the ring. He's not going to look for the ropes. He's going to look for the middle of the ring and push you back. And he's going to try and break you down. He's going to try and crush your soul. And there's a fan, that's what you want. And Dan Aziz delivers that. So one of the things I talk to boxers of varying ages and abilities about is concentration. You will find, and try this next time you watch boxing, the really good boxers, the really elite guys, never switch off. They don't have a single fraction of a second off. For them, boxing's a sequence of movements that doesn't stop. From the first belt to the last, it doesn't stop. And so what does this concentration look like? It's the ability to stay at this high state of alert. So I can watch everything. I can see your nostrils flaring. I can see your eyes blinking quicker than normal. You take in all of this information and you, you remain focused enough that you can execute on it. Next time you watch boxing, just watch what happens. A lot of guys, you'll see this in a fight. Someone will throw a double jab, right hand, left hook. And you'll see them switch off immediately, take two or three steps away, walk around the ring, and then reset and go again. Those guys rarely ever make it to the top. The guys who make it to the top are the guys who can throw that combination, stay in that moment, see what the opponent's response is, and go again. You know, it's almost like adaptive, adaptive offense. You're just literally learning. As your opponent gives you more information, you learn and you adapt accordingly. And I started to see that with Dan on Saturday night. And it, I, there are two things I've moaned about with Dan. One, he used to wait too long between attacks. And two, he'd switch off. You know, he'd land a big shot and he'd be like, whew, that's my job done. Against Shikan Pitters, you didn't see that. You saw a greater volume of work coming out of Dan per round and overall in the fight. And I thought that was brilliant considering it was a 12-rounder. 
and it was just little things. So if you notice, early in the fight, she can, because you work on it in camp, right? Basic, basic tall guy 101. Throw a jab or faintly jab, step back, uppercut is down, walking in. And where Dan was smart, he'd just leave a little bit of that left arm somewhere in the path of that right hand. So it would never land clean, it would just deflect. And it, it didn't need this elaborate defensive play. It just needed enough. It's like, well, if I'm going to take it, let me just deflect it away. And what that would do is it would fluster Shikan Pitters because that was really his key weapon. And when that didn't work, it didn't look like he had a plan B. Now, people talk about all of these venerable coaches in the Midlands. Those guys, um, is it John Pegg? I think John Pegg was in Isaac Chamberlain's corner as well. And I'm starting to notice a pattern that nothing comes through from a, from a plan B perspective. And so once Shikan's right uppercut didn't work, if you notice, John Pegg went to the, just keep it boring, throw the one-two. But by this point, Shikan is so drilled in, that, in the tactical throwing the uppercut. Straight after those instructions, he walks out and he throws that right uppercut again. And then you try to switch to the left uppercut, which you don't want to do with Dan because you're inviting him to throw his right hand. And Dan, quite rightly, he, he could say, I think, and I'd like to know Dan's view on this. It's almost like Dan realized Shikan had nothing for him. Once Dan was like, his jab's nothing to me. That uppercut, I've read that, it's cool. He hasn't really got a left hook. And then Dan just said, you know, I'm just going to bully this guy. He doesn't want to be here. And I think from around se round seven onwards, Shikan didn't really want to be there. He knew that what he had trained for wasn't materializing and it wasn't working. And that's what happens when you stay fully concentrated. That's what happens when you, when you press the action. And I thought it was a comfortable win for Dan. I was nervous. Like when I was coming home, I was saying to guys, how's Dan getting on? I was really nervous. But when I sat down to watch it, comfortable performance. And like, it's a step change. It's a big growth. Like Dan going to America might be the making of him. Because you're out there, you're, you're larking around with, I don't know who is with, Kovalev, because he must have been, right? Because Buddy McGirt was there. So let's say Kovalev was there. Let's say you're working with Baturbiev, and you might have even worked with Pascal. Those guys are going to teach you things. I thought Dan did a few things that weren't quite a Baturbiev level, but were like what I call Baturbiev principles. And you, you, you saw this a lot with Baturbiev and Marcus Brown. And it's this, this idea of once I've established my power, once you know how hard I hit, I can peck away at you. I wish more guys did this. This is something I wish Denzel actually did. You know when people have that natural power and they're heavy-handed and they can do that damage? Sometimes I'm like, you don't even have to do it all the time. And so sometimes you just want to peck away. Peck, 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 bang. And when you switch up those textures, I didn't think I'd ever describe punches as textures, but when you switch up those textures, you create that sense of fear in an opponent. If you just th keep throwing heavy bombs, people get used to it. But if a few of them are little pecks, bang, 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 get you moving, get you thinking, and then bang, something comes over the top, that's more likely to put you down. And I saw, I saw more of that from Dan. Obviously, there's a lot, you can see there's a lot Dan's working on, and it's tough, right? You're British champion and you're still having to work on things. You know, the cross-handed block, that looks embryonic, but when that comes into play, 
like I say, down is going to be very hard to beat because once you start throwing that, you're forcing people to go to the body. So Dan now needs to realize that when I go in with a cross-handed block, what I'm actually saying to that guy is, I want you to go to the body. And in going to the body, I've got a counter over the top. Now I've made you reluctant to go to the body. So now what are you going to do? And they're the sort of puzzles I think you're going to start seeing from Dan in the next couple of years. And then just another thing I remembered about Baturbiev that I really liked, and hopefully Dan can incorporate this, because I think when you're heavy-handed, there's got to be a little bit of confidence that comes with that. And it's that when Baturbiev hits you, you never see him load up. So he just focuses on getting the punch to the target as fast as possible, trusting that his technique will take care of the rest. And that's where the power comes from. And that's, that's, that's the next evolution in Dan. So to go from where he is now, which is, I think, beyond British level, but just, only just at the moment, you know, he still needs that European test, but beyond British level, but to go to that world level where you can sit there with guys like Marcus Brown, you need that relaxation and those varying textures of punches and attacks because it's a thinking man's game at that level. Dan's a thinking man, so he can do it, and I pray that he does it because he's talented enough to do it. And I'm trying to just trying to position now. Where would I put Dan? So, if we look at all of the different eras in boxing, in the light heavyweight division. So if we if we look at the last decade, who are we really talking about? We're talking about guys like Nathan Cleverly, Tony Bellew, uh, Bob Adjusev. Uh, Put Frank Bullioni in. No, no, he's more. Yeah, tail end of the decade. We'll put Bullioni in there. Put Callum Johnson in there. So you got Adjusef, rest in peace. Dean Francis, put him in there. Is Dan competitive in that era? This version of Dan? I think he is. May struggle a bit with Bellew and Cleverly because I think you know, they were shooting towards world honours pretty quickly at that point. But he's in the fight with both of those guys. Definitely. So I don't think those, those fights are gimmies for either one of those guys. I think Dan's competitive. Um, we still haven't seen the ceiling, so we don't know if there are new heights that he could ascend. So I'd say he's competitive in, over the last 10 years. And then in the period before that, I think it was guys like, I might be wrong on this, that's guys like Peter Heyman, Tony Oki, and he's definitely in that company. Um, but it might have been one of the McGee's as well at that level. He's definitely in that company. Uh, Dodson, yep, 100% in that company. Decade before that, I think is probably one of the harder decades, well, the two decades preceding that are the two harder decades for me to judge. So would you put Crawford Ashley, Clinton Woods, uh, who else was around at that time? Hey, feel free to insert any name you wish in there. Was that Peter Oboe's era? But those sorts of guys, that's that for me that's the perfect era for someone like Dan Aziz because all those guys could hit hard Clinton could hit hard um Crawford could hit hard they could all hit hard they could all take a shot and they all loved the fight and I think Dan would have been perfect in that era would have been perfect in the era of guys like Dennis Andrews I think it's Tony Booth um who else was there Keith Bristol was in that era too so there's a, yeah, in the 80s, he'd also been competitive. So I look at Dan and I say, Dan's competitive in all these eras. And that's a testament to his talent. And I'd like to see him now kick on. 
um, if the Pascal fight doesn't happen for him because Boatsy takes it, cool. Give him, give him someone who's British plus, like a Rocky Fielding. I think Dan beats Rocky Fielding. Give him Lyndon Arthur. I think Dan beats Lyndon Arthur. And I'm not saying that disrespectfully. I'm just saying I think Dan beats these guys. So get, give him his time to shine. In 10-ounce gloves, I think he's a different proposition to the guy he was as an amateur. And I'm, I'm happy for him. I think that's the best way to describe it. I thought it was a mature performance, an evolved performance, and he's hinted as to what's going to come next. I would say he worked on his footwork, but I remember the video Denzel shared of him doing ladder drills, and I was like, his feet are his feet. Like, they'll always be the same way. <laughs> but I'm proud of him. I think he's done really well. You know, at various points, they've tried to take that belt off him. They've tried to hold him back. But what Dan's showing fight after fight is he's the most reliable performer out there for Sky. You want fans to be shouting and screaming. You want fans to feel entertained after a fight. You get Dan disease. And I wish they'd reward him accordingly for being that guy that consistently delivers. But other stuff on the card, let's talk about Fraser Clark because there's something not right here. Fraser Clark isn't someone that should be saying I'm learning on the job and I'm going to explain why. Fraser Clark has been an elite level amateur since he was a junior. Like he's a peer of guys like Joseph Parker, etc. He's, he's like, he's of that generation. Do you mean... He's been fighting these guys. He's a peer of these guys like Hergovic, etc., etc. He's been in tournaments facing all of these guys. These are not new characters to him. So I don't understand why he has to fight 15 stone journeymen that don't want to be there. Like, who, who's told him this is the right path for him? And when I see that, I, he's had an easier run than John Pilata did. Yep, yeah, don't at me. Don't at me. He's had an easier run in his fights than John Pilata did. There's no debate about that. JP would have smoked everyone that Fraser Clark is for. That shouldn't be the case. Unless there's something they're not sure about with Fraser, and I don't know what that is. And it, it may be that the GB system's taking its toll on him physically, because why was he 19 stone? Is he not running? What is it? There's something not right with Fraser Clark, and we don't know anything yet, but there's something where I'm like, this doesn't feel right because they should be moving him on fast. He was an elite amateur before Anthony Joshua was. So when he went into the GB setup in 2010, the expectation was Fraser Clark would take GB to the Olympics until Joshua showed up. And Joshua just kind of changed that. And then they said, right, Fraser will take us to 2016. And then Joe Joyce showed up. And I was like, oh, man. And so he stayed in that system in the hope that he'd make it to the Olympics. And he has done. Kudos to him for, for getting the medal. But that's come at a price. Those years he could have been developing as a pro and fighting his peers like Joe Parker, he wasn't. But they should be looking to move him fast. You know, they're talking about guys like Sokolowski. I don't even think that's the level he should be aiming for. He should be calling out guys like Nick Webb. He should say, look, can Dave Allen get fit? Let me fight Dave Allen. This is the, these are the fights Fraser Clark should be having. And for me, he should be having hard fights now. What's the point in waiting to have hard fights? To have them now, you don't have 15 years of a career. 
But someone else will ask that question of Fraser, of Sky, of Boxer, and his management team. How on earth is he allowed to get away with fighting what he's fighting? I don't know many other heavyweight prospects that were allowed to do that. Put him in with someone who can hit back. That's all. Let's find out if he's a man we need to get behind or not. But I'm not waiting 10 fights for him to have a meaningful fight. It's not worth the time. It's not worth the effort. That's my take on it. I just, yeah, there's something not right around the Fraser Clark situation that we're not being told. Um, other events on the card, thought Adam Azim was class again. I don't think we're going to learn anything about Adam Azim until he fights someone who can really hit back. But who do you get? Um, at some point, you want to put him in with a guy like Lewis Ritson, right? Could he handle a guy like Lewis Ritson? How long would it take him to be able to handle a guy like Lewis Ritson? Because if you're talking about being the youngest heavy, well, light, light welterweight champ, what you're really saying is, I need to be getting rid of guys like Lewis Ritson now. Lewis Ritson, Miguel Vasquez, I need to be getting those names on my record in the next 12 months. Can he do that? I don't know. I like him. I am. He's, he's a big junior welterweight for the record, and he can really dig. But it's that fortitude, that resilience, that toughness. Has he got that? Because you have to remember, he's had it all his own way since he was a kid. And I'm not saying that to, to cast any aspersions over his ability. I'm just saying you always want to see people get into tough situations as early as they can so they can show us they've got that resilience. And then we won't question it again. So I just want to see him in there with someone that will offer some some resistance you know i don't want any of these warmed up names of these journeymen anymore give him someone even like a k prosper put him in with k prosper put him in with samuel mason if he's the real deal start putting him in with those guys he should be chasing dalton smith i think that'll be an interesting dynamic but kudos to him. I think Shane's doing a wonderful job with him. Um, you know, Shane's keeping all of our expectations sensible. So, yeah, yeah, I was absolutely happy to see that fight. Always happy to see Tasha Jonas. One thing that no one ever talks about with Tasha's move to light middleweight is finally someone's making weight safely. Tasha Jonas weighed in with a T-shirt on weight, what, 148, 149 pounds? not having to starve herself. So Natasha Jonas is literally in camp preparing to fight. There's no weight cutting. Her camp, literally, you, you go into camp and you come out of camp without having to cut weight. The scales are what the scales are. As long as you're strong, effective and powerful. That's, and I think that's incredible. I don't know how many more people could get away with that. It helps that Natasha Jonas is strong and she can dig. So I don't know how many other people would be able to get away with that, if I'm being brutally honest. I, I can't tell you how many could, but I like that. When someone's fighting closer to their natural weight and they just look relaxed and they look healthy, which she did. Um, a Swedish lady she fought was game, but Tasha being Southport, being experienced like she is, easy work for her. Easy, easy work. And... What do you do next? Would you fight the winner of Rankin versus Harper? Uh, uh, okay.
If that's how it's going to be, that's how it's going to be. But that's not necessarily my thing. I'd like to see her get stuck in with these people like Chantal Cameron, etc. She deserves it. Yeah. If she wants to do the whole unification thing, cool, and become undisputed, understand that. But I'd like to see Tasha Jonas just taking names, hunting, hunting down the people who, who did her wrong, seeking revenge. I'd like to see that version of Tasha just, just angry and hungry. Another one, you know, you've got, got to tip your hat off to Joe again. You know, he's there. People forget Joe Gallagher was the engine behind Matchroom's growth. Right? He was the engine. Okay, Joe didn't produce Kel Brook. He didn't produce Carl Froch. No. But look at all of those Gallagher guys who went on Hearn shows and Hearn could navigate to world title shots and European title shots. All, all of that. Um, Crawler and Scotty Quigg and all of these guys that Joe was involved with. Hosea Burton way back when. All of these guys Joe was involved with that were like the engine of Matchroom's growth. And people forget that. Eddie seems to have forgotten that. That was Joe. And now he's doing that again where he's going to provide the engine for Sky's growth. And kudos to him. You know, in about nine or ten days, we're going to be on opposite sides when... Denzel takes on Marcus Morrison and wins comfortably. But for now, I'm going to tip my hat off to him because I think he's done a wonderful job with Tasha. I think he's shown most of the time boxing's mental. If you can get into a fighter's head and get their brain in the right place, get them focused on the right things, you can get a performance out of them. You don't need a 12-week camp if you can get the mind right. And I think he's done that with Tasha. So credit to, to gentleman Joe G., because big Jonas fan would love to see her do her thing, um, become undisputed, and then just move up and down the ways having fun. Less said about the main event, the better. I quite like the Marquinho kid who beat Eggington because I remember the videos of him doing knuckle push-ups on what you call them, cinder blocks, and basically hitting a punch bag full of sand that was leaking. And I was like, this guy's not messing around. But something happened in that fight. No idea what. You know, Beefy hit him twice after the bell. Wholly unsavory fight. Let's just, let's just forget that one ever happened, if I'm being honest with you. I just, yeah, we'll forget that one ever happened. So one question I have, and this weekend hasn't really answered it, is how good are Andy Ruiz and Luis Ortiz? Because for years, definitely with Luis Ortiz, we had him as the bogeyman of the division, right? the most avoided guy, this guy who we thought Joshua was actively avoiding. And then he fought wild and he got knocked out twice. Then we had to look at him again and go, well, okay, Wilder's a, a one-off sort of guy, right? But he's been put down by Charles Martin and he's been put down by Andy Ruiz a few times, right? So in the last two fights, he's been dropped five times. He got dropped against Wilder and he got dropped against Wilder again. So how good is Luis Ortiz? You start to look at that record of his and you're like Malik Scott, uh, Tony Thompson, uh, um, Monty Barrett. Uh, and there's a lot of that, like Brian Jennings. Uh, there's a lot of that. Like it's not a bad record, but he beat guys you're supposed to beat if you want to hold a world title without necessarily beating anyone who was, is, or would be elite. He hasn't done that. And if you look at Andy Ruiz, 
his biggest win is Joshua. Then up, apart from that, who is it? Ariola, a 59-year-old Luis Ortiz. Um, Alexander Dimitrenko. Andy Ruiz couldn't beat Joseph Parker, and we generally accept Joseph Parker to be below elite now. So I find it strange that Eddie, Eddie Hearn will do an IFL interview talking about Andy Ruiz being an elite heavyweight. But he only says that to preserve value in Joshua. Deep down, he knows Andy Ruiz isn't that good. Ruiz has a lot of the elements that make someone an incredible fighter. Hand speed. Seems to have that power naturally strong. Stamina issues? Never really seen him. But having said all of that, doesn't seem hungry or focused. It's almost like once he beat Joshua, he'd climbed his Everest. And he's boxing for money now. That's really what he's doing. There's no real drive in that. And so for him to be setting up a path to fight the winner of Wilder Hellenius, good luck to him because that's going to be something he hasn't had to face before. That's when you'll find out if Ruiz really has that chin and if he really wants to be that kind of fighter. Because right now you've got to put him at that kind of... I'll put him at that kind of... Brian Jennings and a little bit above level. I think Andrew Ruiz is competitive with guys like Dillian White. I think he's competitive with guys like Joseph Parker. I just don't think he gives the elite guys trouble. I don't think he gives Fury trouble. I don't think he gives Usyk trouble. I don't think he gives Wilder trouble. To be honest, I think if Joshua switched on, I don't think he'd give him trouble right now. But credit, because... Before Ruiz beat Joshua, he was just this guy who would never fulfill his potential. And now you're starting to see him build something for himself. And you're like, well, okay, let's see where this goes. But I still have no idea how good he is. Yeah. I thought they gave us an entertaining fight. I thought it was two guys who were above gatekeeper but below elite fighting each other. And good technical fight. Ruiz's right hand. When, when, he, when he leans and whips that right hand, you can see why that caused hell for Joshua. You, I don't believe you see it coming. I think it just shoots out. His arms are so short and they're so quick. I just don't think you see him. But I'm a, yeah. Let, let those guys fight. Let, let Didion fight and Didion White fight one of those guys. Let's start getting that. Let Dubois fight one of those guys. Let's start to, to shake out that kind of upper middle tier of fighters now. Let's start to see who are the next guys to be elite. Because that's what we're intrigued by. Because if you look at who's coming through quickly, um, that Jalilov guy who won the gold medal, he's coming through quickly. I like Richard Torres. Um, so he won the silver medal. He's looking really good. Much like Ruiz, but I think he's southpaw. Unbelievably quick hands, strong, compact. Probably carries a bit more muscle than Ruiz. Who, by the way, do you remember when people were posting up pictures of Ruiz looking ripped and shredded? And you just didn't believe it. And then on fight night, he had like three tons of back bacon on him. And you almost felt like just running behind him with like a, a long knife and just shredding that donami off the back of him. But weird guy. Got a middleweight's lower body and a sumo wrestler's upper body and still manages to put people on their backside. <laughs> Only in America. One thing I wanted to add, and this touches on what we just talked about earlier, was... I said the sticking point would be about agreeing to a December 17th date. So it seems that Tyson Fury said you've got to fight the last Saturday in November and the first Saturday in December. Or the fight's off. Oh, man. Damn. Why? 
I imagine it's just a nightmare dealing with Tyson Fury. Imagine you're at work and you have to deal with Tyson Fury and you're like, so Tyson, we're launching the product on October 31st. We need your bit in by October 24th. No way. No. Like, he'd just be like, no, you're going to get it two weeks after or I can do it right now or not at all. Just, you, you couldn't work with someone like that. I guess that's why he's a boxer, because he can be his own man. Like, he'd be a nightmare in a team sport. He'd just be a nightmare in anything where you had to rely on him for integrity. As we're all saying, just make the damn fight. And if this fight doesn't happen because of the date, if this fight doesn't happen because of the date, I don't want to see Twitter criticizing Joshua, because Joshua said, I'll fight you in December. December 17th works for me. 60-40 split in your favor works for me. What more do you need? Take the damn date. He's took the damn money. That's what compromise is all about. But I'm stealing myself for Fury versus Char and Joshua versus Wilden at the moment until I see something signed. And on that note, I want to tap out, guys, and say, enjoy the rest of your week. Remember, if you like the content, share, introduce someone new to the pod. Make sure that you're not the only one listening to it. It's always a great thing to talk about over the water cooler, in the pub, whatever. You know, and it's crazy. Like, I keep bumping into people who listen to either this pod or listen to me on Porky. And just shouts out to all of them. Um, met guy Sean on Sunday. Lovely guy. Um, that's why we do this, man, for the engagement, the fan discussion. And I also have to remind people that I can do it off the top. I don't need notes. And I know, let me sign up and say, take care, guys. <laughs>